Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 6. There's a new sheriff in town proclaims the tall, lean man in the long, tan-colored duster as he walks into the saloon. With alert eyes, he quickly glances around the room, sizing up the various town folks gathered for a night of festivities. And slowly, he moves his duster back behind him, exposing twin Colt revolvers rustled and nestled in a cowhide holster. With his hands gently laid on the handles of both pistols, he speaks quietly, but with an authority that draws the attention of every eye and ear. And as the music stops, along with the noise of the crowd and the laughter of the customers, the man proclaims that he is in town to bring law and order. Things are going to change, and he's about to rectify all that has gone wrong in that small little town. Good morning. Thank you for joining us as we continue Luke chapter 6. We're talking about a new sheriff in town and things are about to change. And we're seeing this as we continue on with the conflicts of Jesus. And thank you for just beholding as this reader tries to be a little bit of a Western fictional writer. Last week, Jesus shared that his mission included not only the outsiders and the outcasts and the sinners, but that it also called for a new way of worshiping that comes from a joyful heart. And now that the Messiah, the bridegroom, had arrived, it was time for rejoicing and gladness, not mourning and sorrowfulness. This pointed to the new covenant that Jesus was going to institute as it fulfills the old covenant that Yahweh had made with the Hebrew children when they left Egypt. We read just a little bit of it just a moment ago with Landon. The new covenant is able to do what the old covenant could not do, and that's to make one right with God through the permanent forgiveness of sin, not the temporary forgiveness of sin, but the permanent putting away of all sin, and the righteousness of Christ, the giving of the righteousness of Christ that was given to God's children, to those that would repent of their sin and commit to following Him. Now, over the last past few weeks, we've been considering the five conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. The first conflict, if you might recall, was Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralytic. In the second, they complained about Jesus eating with sinners at Levi's house. While the third conflict was about showing religious piety in fasting. Those were the last three weeks. In each of these conflicts, Jesus asserts his authority as the Messiah, as the anointed one. Today we're going to consider the fourth conflict between Jesus and religious leaders as Luke is going to narrate the displeasure of the Pharisees with the actions of the disciples as they walk through the grain fields in the area. So with that, Luke chapter 6, let's look at those first two verses. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them with their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Father, I pray that you just be with us this morning, 
Thank you for this word. Help us to take this, this story, this narrative that is far removed from our experiences and from our time. But let us understand what it means for us today. As your Holy Spirit works, I pray that we would be attentive. Father, that you would just direct our hearts to your word and then we would respond to the ways in which your spirit is calling us to this morning. To your glory we pray. Amen. At first glance, this accusation against the disciples, what are, or why are you doing what is lawful or is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, seems pretty petty and silly, especially to us today. Traveling from one village to the next on the Sabbath, the disciples are hungry. And since they are in a field of grains, they take the opportunity to snack while they are walking. Now, has anyone ever done this type of thing before? Uh, you know, anyone? Okay, there's a few. Okay, one or two. Uh, this is something I can understand. In the neighborhood that we grew up, we had many cornfields in around. I mean, it was, just, it was just ordinary for us to ride our bikes down the street. There's a cornfield. And we would walk in there and we would grab off things of corn and just kind of munch on them and stuff like that. The worst thing you do is if you got cow corn that was made for cows for feed. That wasn't really good. But there was a couple times. There's actually, well, I won't even go into that story. It has nothing here and there. But it's a funny story. But so this is just makes sense to me. You would go in there, and as kids, you'd go and hide and play in the little corn mazes, and you'd grab the corn and things like that. I don't think the, the owner of the farm probably liked what we kind of mess we left. But this is kind of what's going on. Not, not necessary, but they're traveling through and traveling from one village to the next. Uh, they're hungry, and so they're in a field of grain, so they just take the opportunity to snack while they're walking. Now, plucking the heads of grain was not considered stealing, because that may be the first thing you're thinking. Well, they're taking what isn't theirs. However, that was actually considered lawful in those days and in that time. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, God gives the liberty to the traveler and to those that were poor when he commands, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, so grain that is growing, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing ground, uh, grain. So you could walk and you could pluck, but you couldn't cut. In other words, if you're walking, you could just grab what you need, but you weren't to go and harvest it yourself. So the edges of the field were routinely left unharvested. So they would leave it and they would not, the owner would not pluck those out. He would leave it there for the poor and the needy to show compassion. Travel was much different in those ancient times than it is today. Today you may have different avenues to get food as you're traveling, a, a restaurant, a snack food place, or just packing food in a cooler and things of that nature as you travel so you could eat while you go. But in those days, of course, there was no such thing. God commands the owners of the property to show mercy by allowing travelers and, the, and those that were needy and poor uh, to eat freely, while at the same time protecting the owner's rights by forbidding people to just go and cut what they wanted. By the way, this is a political editorial note. We can think it and take it away, is that God understands and accepts and tells us about property and property rights. So the problem wasn't that the disciples were eating from the grain fields and eating without pain, but the actual day that they were doing it. They were doing it mainly on the Sabbath. Now the other issue was the fact that the disciples were not just picking the grain and eating it, but that they were rubbing it between their hands to get out all the, the chaff 
and then so they would have the grain. So it's not necessarily corn. It must have been some type of barley or some type of thing that you would have. And so what they were doing was to the Pharisees unlawful because now they were threshing. They were working to get to the, to the wheat. Now, if you had corn, if pulling the husk was probably wrong, you just had to eat the husk and everything else. So in this case, it was the fact that they were rubbing it in their hands was the issues. You see, the Pharisees considered this as threshing, and threshing made it work. Now, threshing and reaping were two of the 39 acts forbidden to do on the Sabbath from the beginning. The list of uh, 39 acts that were forbidden were based on the types of work that were needed to build the sanctuary. These 39 forbidden acts were based on the interpretation from Exodus 31 that we just read earlier. Those two things are put together. And since the first part of chapter 31 dealt with the building of the sanctuary, and as you just recall from just a second ago, is that the last part is the Sabbath, they combined those two and said, these acts then were forbidden. They combined the two and says, these you could not do on the Sabbath. Dr. MacArthur notes that regarding the Sabbath and how it was later interpreted by the time we get to the first century A.D. with Jesus, he writes, in the Talmud, there are 24 chapters of Sabbath laws. Think about that. 24 chapters of what you could not do or do on the Sabbath. In these chapters, one would find no burden could be carried that weighed more than a dried fig. Or half a fig carried two times. If one put an olive in your mouth and rejected it because it was bad, you couldn't put a whole one in the next time because your palate had tasted the flavor of a whole olive. It doesn't matter that it was bad. If you threw an object in the air and you caught it with the other hand, it was a sin. You'd have to catch it with the same hand. If you caught it in the same hand, then it wasn't. It was okay. If a person was in one place and he reached out his arm for food and the Sabbath came, overtook him, he would have to drop the food and not return his arm. Or he would be carrying a burden and that would be sin. A tailor couldn't carry his needle. The scribe couldn't carry his pen. A pupil couldn't carry his books. Who would do that on a Sabbath? I don't know. No clothing could be examined lest somehow you would find lice and inadvertently kill it. You just have to let the lice continue for the Sabbath. Wool could not be dyed. Nothing could be sold. Nothing could be bought. Nothing could be washed. A letter could not be sent even if it was sent via a heathen or a Gentile. No fire could be lit. Cold water could be poured on warm, but warm water could not be poured on cold. An egg could not be boiled, even if all you did was put it in the sand, which today might work. As you can see, after much time, the religious leaders had taken the simple command of a day of rest and worship and codified it into something unrecognizable, an unrecognizable list of religious worship that actually wound up creating more burdens than rest. Now, in verse 3, Jesus asked a counter question based on the events that we found in 1 Samuel chapter 21 when David is running from Saul. Look at verse uh, chapter, or chapter 6, look at verse 3 of Luke. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? 
he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, and he took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Now you can find that story, as again I said, in 1 Samuel 21. Uh, uh, King David is running from Saul. He is hungry. He, his men are hungry. They're running. They have no place to go. They've run out of, of food and staples and things of that nature, so they go to the only place they know. They go to the old tabernacle that's not in any use anymore, or, or Saul isn't really going to it anymore, and they see this bread, and so they ask for it. The bread of presence consists of 12 loaves of unleavened bread, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They were placed on the table of the sanctuary, and at the end of the week they were replaced with fresh ones, whatever wasn't eaten. The old loaves were to be eaten only by the priests, and while it was not normally lawful for David and his companions to eat this consecrated bread, they were at the point where it was to, they were, it was to take the bread and eat, or to starve, or to famish, or to weaken themselves in light of Saul's armies coming upon them. And nowhere does Scripture condemn them for eating, neither the priest. In reminding them of this account of David's life, Jesus is teaching them the point of the Sabbath that they have been missing all of these years. In Mark's gospel account of this event, Jesus is recorded as saying, the Sabbath was made for man, but not man for the Sabbath. And now Luke doesn't record this phrase for this, this answer of Jesus for some reason, but in his account, it still means the same as he shares the event. Theologian Walter Wessel writes that Jesus does not claim that the Sabbath law has not been technically broken, but that such violations are under certain conditions are warranted. So in other words, you're not understanding what's happening here. The teachers of the law, including the Pharisees, had added so many burdens to the observance of the laws as to make them nonsensical. Ralph Earl writes in his commentary that Jesus is teaching that human need is higher than religious ritualism. So in other words, he's saying you need to think of the person. So the Pharisees, they're just thinking about tradition and religious ritualism and merit and self-righteousness, and, and they're judging others for what they would not do. Jesus is simply answering that the Sabbath was made for man to rest and worship, not to impose more burdens on people. In this case, the Pharisees would rather disciples go hungry than to violate their rules for the Sabbath. And I want to spend a few moments on the importance of the Sabbath. For you and I need to understand what that meant to the Jews of the time and what is going on. To the Jews, is a, to the Jews of the, uh, Jesus' day, the Sabbath was a joyful fes uh, festival. It was a sign of the covenant. It marked them out as God's people. No one else other than the Jews uh, uh, observed such a special day. Is a reminder of the divine creation of six days. It would put their minds and hearts on what God had created during those six days. It provided the rules that they're to provide, uh, that they were to obey. It gave them a time and a season as every seven day the Sabbath would come. And it was also a means of gaining merit for Israel. This was something in which they were to do to please God. Now, observant of the Sabbath is a much more sacred ordinance than fasting was that we speak of last week. And the topic that we saw from last week, now the Sabbath ran from sundown Friday 
night to sundown Saturday. So it's not just Saturday. It, you know, the, the Messianic Church that meets here, they start Friday night at, at, at sundown and they go until Saturday at, at uh, uh, sundown as well. So the period is a little bit different than you and I. The Sabbath was first instituted at creation. You see it here on your monitor. Look at Genesis 2.2. Where Moses writes, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. However, as we see that creation order, you see no rules given to Adam and Eve about keeping the Sabbath holy. You see nothing given to Seth or to Abel. You see nothing really about Noah, though he does repeat it. There's no rules or regulations of how they are to worship on that day or what they're to do on that day. But later in, uh, in the Ten Commandments in the Mosaic Law, the Sabbath is codified. As we see in the Fourth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, 8 through 11, you'll see that here on your monitor, where now God is saying, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord your God. You sh on it you shall do no work. You, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner, the one who's traveling, who's within your gates. For in six days God made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed that day, and he made it Holy. So as we come to Exodus and we see as Israel now is becoming a, a people, a recognized nation, God says, this is now a day that you need to observe and this is how you are to do it and you are to be reminded that it was something that is based on what I did. Now because of the importance of keeping the Sabbath and the severity of breaking it, they had added so many other requirements that the true purpose of the Sabbath had been forgotten. The New City Catechism states that in the fourth commandment, God requires, and you'll see this here again on the monitor, and you might remember as we did this, what does God require in the fourth commandment? We see the answer next, that on the Sabbath day, we spend time in public and private worship of God, rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. And you can just leave that up for a moment. Now, I want to just take a moment for you and I to consider what this catechism tells us. It's given us three things that you and I are to do on the Sabbath. The first one is we are to spend time in public and private worship of God. Hence why we meet together. It's for the public reading of scripture. It is to the encouragement of the saints. It's to declare the word of God. It's to build and use our spiritual gifts to build one another up. Now, coming to church is important. It is something that we are commanded to do. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves. And so why do we feel that meeting here is so important in, in, in spite of all that's going on in the world? This right here, we're commanded to do so. But it also says the private worship of God. And I just want to encourage you real quickly, many times, and I'm guilty of this, we do our duty on Sunday morning, we go out of here, we go to lunch, and then the rest of the day is ours, and we never have any time of private worship of God. But the first thing we're to do is we're to have public and private worship of God. Now, the second one is we're to rest from routine employment. Now, this is difficult in this day and age. Many people do have to work on a Sabbath day on what well, we'll say Sunday. I'll just use that for now. Uh, but even then on the, on the Saturday. 
but we're to take a rest. We're to rest from it. In other words, you say, why do we need to rest from that? We'll tackle a little bit more next week as we look at the second part of this, this conflict, but it's to recognize who God is, that God will supply our needs. But not only that, it's to serve the Lord and others. And that's one of the things we come here this morning. And I remember so many times people will come in and say, well, you know, I got nothing from the message. I don't even know why I need to come to church. I know as much as pastor, I'm sure many of you do. You can read the passage just as well as I do. You can look up. There are enough tools online that you can do what I do. I understand that. And I, and I accept and I thank you for the privilege and responsibility to do that for you. But again, many times we think, well, why do, why do we need to come here? Because we need to come to serve one another. As you walk through this door, it is not a buffet where you come and fill yourself up. You should be coming, Lord, who can I serve today? Who, who needs my spiritual gift? How can I build and encourage someone else up this morning? And I would encourage as we come in, yes, we wear in our mask and we're supposed to wear them until we sit down, but take them off. And I'm talking also about that, physical, that, that spiritual mask that you're wearing so that we can use our gifts to encourage and build you up. But then we see that all three of those things, public and private worship of God, the rest from our routine employment, and then to serve the Lord and others, we're doing all that so because we are anticipating Christ coming again. So as you and I look at that, the Sabbath is more than just a day off so that we can go to church. There is something that God is wanting us to accomplish on that day. However, the Pharisees, the teachers, and the leaders had taken the law of the Sabbath. Instead of just those three things, they have added more rules and regulation than God had ever given them. The rules and regulation become so burdensome and so heavy, and they became a real pain in the neck. That's just my words. Yet even with that in mind, it was so important to their faith that a thousand Jews died early. Listen to this. It was so important to them that almost a thousand Jews died during the Maccabean rebellion because they would not defend themselves because the Greeks attacked them on a Sabbath. They laid down their swords and their shields and they would not even defend themselves. And a thousand of them died on that day. It is in verse 5 we get to the crux of the matter. Luke chapter 6. When Jesus proclaims, look at this, and you may want to underline this, highlight this in your Bible. When he says, the son of the man is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's the turning point of this passage. We've already read that the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And now he asserts that he is also the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus has personal authority to wipe away all other extra-biblical observations and legalities and to declare what is acceptable and right. What he's saying to them is very clear to them. One pastor notes that when Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, he struck the severest blow at the Pharisees', the Pharisees system. Because that system of work, of merit, of self-righteousness and achievement, of attainment and of spiritual relationship with God through ceremony and ritual and external law-keeping found its focal point, their whole system found its focal point in the keeping 
of the Sabbath. Every seventh day of the week was the main day for the, uh, the, for the Pharisee religion. When the Jew, where Jesus, excuse me, then ignored uh, the Sabbath in that relationship or how they described it and defined it, he put himself in direct conflict with the Jewish leaders at the most sensitive point of their belief system. The Lord of the Sabbath also means Lord of the host. It means that all created agencies and forces are under the command and leadership of Christ. It was more than just a throwaway word. Jesus is taking upon himself a personal responsibility and a privilege that was God's and God's alone. When he's declaring himself as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus was declaring that, number one, that he is the creator of all things. It is only God who instituted the Sabbath. It is he who defines it. It is he who gives it its legal authority. And by saying that I am the Lord of Sabbath, he's saying I am that creator of all things. In 1 John chapter 1, the apostle, writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, proclaims of Jesus that Jesus was in the beginning. And he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and he goes on to say that all things were made through him, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Take your Bibles real quickly and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Another portion of scripture that should be underlined and marked in your Bible. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul declares something very similar. When Jesus is calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath, he is declaring more than just a simple title. He's not simple just arguing with them, but he's drawing a line, a line in the sand, so to speak. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. What Jesus is proclaiming here is something majestic. Something that was otherworldly to them. He was saying, I am God. And you know what? Scripture backs that up. For Jesus is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Not only is he the creator of all things, but by declaring that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, he's declaring that he is the lawgiver. He decides what the law means. In Matthew chapter 5, we've looked at this before. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Whoever relaxes one of these least of these commandments and teaches others the same will be called the least of the kingdom of heaven. So here's Jesus saying, if someone says that the Sabbath is not to be holy, then you are in trouble, you are guilty, you are mourning you of judgment. But here Jesus is doing that. And saying, take your rules and your regulations, for they have no authority over me or over anyone. 
whoever does them and teaches them will be called the greatest of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, I am the lawgiver. I am the one who is qualified to judge and make discernment and make decisions. Also from his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus again would proclaim his authority when he taught, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, response of the crowds when he would teach like this is that they would be astonished at his teaching for he is teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes and and you and I must understand this because Jesus is saying I am the law giver the law is there before him the one who is the law Christ's lordship over the Sabbath means nothing less that he owns the Sabbath that it was for him that he is to be the focus of worship on that high day. That he is the rightful interpreter, either to change the day a week or to shape its characteristics of how we do or how we honor or worship, observe it. He is the custodian and the perpetrator of all of Scripture. Jesus is simply teaching that ceremonial rites, the things that you and I do, the Pharisees were doing to make themselves uh, right with God or to think they made themselves right with God or to make themselves feel better or to justify themselves, must give way to the higher moral law. And that moral law is Jesus himself, for he is the law. Dr. Peter Master writes that Christ rules the Sabbath. It's here on the screen for you. Because by his coming, he fulfilled the symbolism of the Jewish Sabbath, of what it was pointing to. He purchased our salvation. And then he took over the day, filling it with greater meaning than it had before. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so as you and I just look at these two or three verses this morning, once again, this conflict is bringing Jesus to a head with the Pharisees. This, this righteous self-merit working on our own is coming head-to-head -head with Jesus coming and saying, this is not God's way. The last item I want us to consider this morning is do you and I need a Sabbath today? And if so, what day do we observe it? There's still that, uh, that, that argument going on. What is the Sabbath day? Now we're going to consider this a little bit more fully next week. But to prepare us for that, I want to. Uh, it's good for us to remember the words of Paul that were written to the Church of Rome. Where Paul writes, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. But each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You see, you and I are no longer under the Mosaic law. We never would. It was for the covenant people, the Jews. That's what we read earlier in scripture reading. Its purpose and function, though, has been fulfilled in Christ. And we saw a little bit of this of last week, that everything in the law was to point to Christ. It was a shadow and a pattern of that which is in heaven. Yet it is still a good habit to take time to reflect on the wonderful general revelation display through God's creation. The Sabbath was to point us to the creation of what God had created. 
But it also is the special uh, revelation that's revealed through Christ, that's captured through the pages of Scripture. It's a good for us to find renewal and hope in anticipating the internal Sabbath as we await Christ's return. Now, some call Sunday the Christian Sabbath. In many ways, it is true. Scripture informs us that after the ascension of Christ, the followers of the way, in the Scripture, that's what they were called of the way, the believers, they would meet on the first day of week, the Sunday, to listen to the teachings of Christ or teachings of Scripture, to the breaking of the bread and to praying. This is something they do to recognize because that was the day Christ rose. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, on the first day of each week, each of you used to put something aside to store it up. In other words, that's when you would come and bring your gifts and your tithes, your offerings to the church. This gathering of God's children is also considered important and one to take serious. As the writer of Hebrew writes, and let us, not, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's that day? The coming of Christ. It is nearer today than it was yesterday. We are nearer to it today, this moment, than we were just 15 minutes ago. And so you and I are to continue to meet. It is something that God has commanded us to do. So with that, I just want to close with this. Just a word of encouragement. A different type of message as we're really teeing it up for next week as we'll look at 6 through 11. I want to take some time and just celebrate the wondrous mystery of God's redeeming love towards His chosen people through the sending of His Son, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, who secures our salvation through His active and perfect obedience and His passive obedience in suffering in our place. As we come each and every morning on Sunday morning, let us consider that. Let us encourage one another. For to God be the glory great things he has done. Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask the worship team as well as Randy to come on up. I just want to encourage you with a few questions just to help us understand. Do you regularly take a day of rest from your labors? God wants you to. I think it's important. We need to. We need that rest. Not only that, it gives you and shows that you submit to the Lord and that you accept His providence and His uh, supplies, His provision for us. Do you regularly take uh, use of that day to worship and honor God in that time of rest and relaxation? I would ask you to commit this morning to reflecting on the beauty of God and His wonderful promises. For this is a day that God has made that we may worship him. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Encourage us, challenge us to love you. Thank you for this day. We praise in Christ. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.